The Bible reading today comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, and can be found in page 1032 on your church Bibles. Jesus heals a paralytic. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Good morning again, everyone. I've been told where to stand to avoid uh, light uh, getting in my eyes. Is that right? I think this is the right place. Can you all see me okay? Yeah, great. Okay. So, uh, we're looking at a fantastic passage today, aren't we? The, the uh, healing of the paralyzed man or the paralytic, as he's sometimes known. And um, it's great to be um, up here kicking off... Um, our new sermon series, which I gather has been going really well. Great sermons from Liz and Tim. And it's great to be finally installed and collated as well. I don't know if you were there on Monday, but uh, things that I previously thought could only be done to a boiler or by a photocopier <laughs> have now been done to me. That's the Church of England for you. You know, it's uh, often lovable, sometimes laughable, and has its very own language. So there we go. So first love, that's our sermon series this term, and I'm really excited about it. And um, I think it's going to be uh, really helpful to us um, as a church, just reconnecting with Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And today's theme you might have seen, the title is Our Greatest Need. So I thought I'd start by asking you all a question. Don't worry, you don't have to talk to anyone about it, but it's going to come on the screen now. There we go. What is my greatest need? Which doesn't mean what is my greatest need, which is probably that you'll be nice to me for the next 20 minutes and, and listen attentively. But it's, um, what is your greatest need? Just have a moment, and, and let me just put that in, in, in different words just to help you uh, see what I'm after here. What is the thing that you're longing for um, at the moment? What's the thing you find yourself hoping for or maybe praying for, which you feel if it, if it happened would somehow make you more happy and content. Okay, why don't we just take a moment just to think about what that might be for each of us. Okay. 
probably quite thought-provoking. It certainly is for me. Here's another question then, which is certainly of great interest to me as the new vicar today. What is our greatest need? So for St. Paul's, what is the thing that you long for or you really hope and pray for in the coming months and years? I don't know whether anything came readily to mind. If you'd like to, you're very welcome to drop me a line or or have a chat after the service and let me know what sprang to mind for you. But more importantly, what I really want to encourage us all to do is to hold both those things in mind as we go through this sermon. Because what I invite us to do today is to enter into this story of the healing of the paralyzed man ourselves with our hopes, our longings, our needs, to see what encouragement and perspective Jesus brings us through what he does and teaches in this passage. So that's where we're heading today. And I just want to pray that that God would really um, bring this alive for us. And what I want to share is is what I feel he's laid on my heart on this first Sunday. So let's just pray that, that God does whatever he wants to do right now. Father, we thank you for your word Lord, we thank you for new beginnings. Father, we thank you that you call us to be honest with you about our longings and our needs, our struggles and our fears. And Lord, as we think about who we are as a church and our greatest need this morning, I pray that you would really minister to us. Lord, that you would offer us all that uh, assurance and uh, encouragement that we need. Lord, and bring us back to the thing that will bring us the joy and peace that we crave. So thank you, Father, that you're present here by your spirit, and we pray your will will be done now. Amen. So let's get underway by unpacking the story, familiar though it will be to many. And I have to say, it's a really moving instance of love and devotion by these four men to their paralyzed friend, isn't it? But it's fair to say that things don't go immediately to plan, not remotely, in fact, because this is the moment in Luke's gospel where, to borrow a contemporary expression, news of Jesus has gone viral. He's now top box office. And I uh, remember uh, when I was at university, first time around, um, a friend of mine, this is back in the mid-90s, invited me to go to a concert in a a little local student pub to see an unheard of band called Oasis. And uh, I said, I couldn't be bothered to spend five pounds on a bunch of nobodies. So uh, I turned that down. A year and a half later, I'd paid a small fortune to be among 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium watching what was now the biggest band in the country. Well, basically, this moment here in um, Capernaum, we believe it is, is like uh, that moment at Wembley Stadium for Oasis. Jesus is now serious box office. The whole country is flocking to see him. Admittedly, probably the size of the house was about the same as that pub in Cambridge, but you get the the impression, you get the feeling. Not only have people come from all over Galilee, but they've come from Jerusalem and Judea, so we're talking several days' journey to get there, following him around to see what he is going to do and say next. And among them, of course, are people who are not exactly members of Jesus' fan club, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who, in sort of simple layman's terms, were like the thought police of that society. 
Okay, they, they were people who were invested in the status quo, trying to uh, get everyone to keep uh, the law. Um, but actually, as we'll come to see, that was something that neither brought them joy nor anyone else um, that they put pressure on either. And that meant, though, sadly, for these four men and the paralyzed man, that by the time they got to the house, it was absolutely full. It was first come, first served. And presumably, if you're carrying uh, a full-grown man on a mat, you're not going to be as quick at walking as anyone else. Perhaps also they had to persuade him that this was a good idea at all. Either way, by the time they got there, this is the, the scene that we have. I think this picture, as much as any I've seen, really captures that sense that everyone is crammed into the door. Um, there's just no way they're going to get sight of Jesus or even be able to hear him. And we can only imagine how they felt, can't they? They must have been devastated, having gone to so much effort and because they so dearly longed for Jesus to heal their friend. But then suddenly, someone, one of them presumably, has a brainwave. Because disappointment can sometimes give birth to brilliantly creative ideas, can't it? Or even daring ones. And this example is certainly in both categories. He must have been a bit hesitant even about suggesting it, mustn't he? Whoever came up with the idea. It was pretty left field. And yet once they got over their initial dismissal, of the idea as ludicrous, as I expect they did, they started to realize that actually this was their only option. Yes, it was an outrageous one, and I'm sure making a hole in someone's roof was no more acceptable then than it is today. (laughs) And yet so desperately did they want Jesus to be their friend, to heal their friend rather, and to be their friend, um, that they did it up the stairs, around the outside of the house, onto the flat roof, carefully carrying him with the mat. And when they got to work on the roof, with their hands and knees pulling away the reeds and the mud and the wood that formed the roof, Jesus was preaching there below. And you can just imagine the astonishment that the people listening to Jesus packed into that house must have felt as strange noises began being heard above them. If you're in Australia, everyone would assume it was a possum. I don't know what they would assume here. But certainly it wasn't what they were expecting. And it certainly wasn't what they were expecting when the noise got louder and louder and suddenly bits of mud started to fall down. You know, maybe they almost hit Jesus on the head and then twigs and branches and bigger bits of mud. And by which point a hole was visible and everyone stared open mouthed. Presumably by this point, Jesus stopped preaching and he too looked up. And what they could see were some hands poking through, continuing to pull at the the wood and the reeds and the mud as more and more of the roof opened up. Now, of course, some of you might be thinking here, well, I'd quite like that to happen now, actually. (laughs) Quite fun. Tom could stop preaching. The roof's broken anyway, so it's not going to make much difference. but (laughs) But actually, whether you would prefer that or not, believe me, no one wanted Jesus's sermon to end. This was a man they were desperate to listen to. And yet now, with the sermon already finished or interrupted, the hole gets bigger and bigger, and suddenly this thing gets lowered down, a mat it, it seems, and there's a person on it. And I would imagine at that point, some of the people below sort of helped to lower him down to take the weight. And there, in the middle of this room, I'm assuming they made a space, but perhaps it was just some, you know, people's shoulders like crowd surfing. I don't know. But what I can be sure of is that everyone could see this man. And he must have been absolutely embarrassed, 
feeling very self-conscious and to be brutally honest, probably riddled with nerves. Because actually, just think about what was at stake at this point. They'd had the audacity to take what was a massive risk. And the friends of this paralyzed mind must have realized that they either made a huge mistake and committed a massive faux pas, one that would never be forgotten by um, such a close-knit community in that place. Or this was going to be the greatest moment in the paralyzed man's whole life. Imagine the tension. How would Jesus react? And it's the great moment of suspense in the whole story. You can cut the tension with a knife. The crowd, the paralyzed man, and the friends wait with bated breath. They believe Jesus can do it, just as he's healed so many other people. But will he, in such circumstances? And the answer is that Jesus... Seeing their faith, the passage tells us, turns to the paralyzed man and says something completely and utterly unexpected. Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Has Jesus lost the plot? Isn't it obvious they've gone to all this effort so Jesus can heal their friend? And instead he says this. What is he playing at? And yet, of course, that is not the end of the story. For it's not all Jesus will say or do. But first, he wants to give the crowd just a few seconds just to take in what he has said and the incredible significance of those words. And what he's particularly interested in is the reactions of those Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He knows they're there, he knows what they're thinking. He can read their minds just as he always can, and as he can, of course, ours today. And the question he's asking them in this situation here that he knew was going to happen is, are they proud and stubbornly resistant to God's purposes through him? Or are they open, willing to put aside their prior expectations and respond to the love and authority that he is so obviously demonstrating? Just like, incidentally, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 would do despite his own connections with the Pharisees. Well, almost immediately, Jesus sadly knows what this group of people, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, are thinking. And verse 21 actually tells us, doesn't it? It was by thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew this was a claim to divinity. You didn't need a degree in theology to know that. Jesus' words in claiming to forgive sins were astounding. And given their own proud presuppositions of what God could or could not do, as well as their instinctive rejection of Jesus who threatened their own status in society. Well, they immediately ruled out the possibility that he was so obviously holding out to everyone there, that he really was God incarnate that he really was the Son of God, that this really was the Messiah that had been predicted by so many prophecies in the Old Testament and to which the Jewish people had put their hope. And instead they concluded that he was blaspheming, something, of course, that no true prophet could ever do. And yet Jesus has an answer prepared, doesn't he? For he knows the easiest thing in the world would be to claim to forgive someone's sins because no one can verify whether he's actually done it, whether it's been effective. 
It's something internal, invisible, and could only be taken on faith. And yet Jesus knew that he could show them why they could be confident that he had this authority by demonstrating his authority in ways that could be seen visibly, physically. So he turned to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and said this, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. This is the logic. The physical healing proves his authority to do the inner spiritual healing of forgiveness of sins that this man and everyone else in the room and in the world truly needs. And the finale of the story must have been just as dramatic. As verse 25 tells us, the man immediately stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, picking up his mat, and went home praising God. It's an amazing image, isn't it? The man who'd been paralyzed, presumably for many years, who in such a small, tight-knit community was probably known by everyone. And the passage concludes, everyone was amazed and they gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. So, that's the story. The The initial lesson was clear. Jesus was claiming to be God and he asserted that man's greatest need and by implication everyone's greatest need is to be forgiven for our sin. So let's now bring ourselves back into it as we set out to do at the beginning. And let's start with the crowd then who clearly all thought that the greatest need of the man on the mat was to be healed. It was blindingly obvious and In a society without social security or wheelchairs, the reasons were plentiful. And yet, let's be honest, we all too have needs that can sometimes feel just as pressing, at least if, even in our situation, it's far less desperate in reality. I don't know what you've been praying for recently. I don't know how you answered that question we began with. I don't know what the longing of your heart is right now. Jesus does. And be assured that he cares deeply about it. And yet the truth which this encounter was intended to teach in the providence of God was this. No need, no longing, no answer to prayer you may desperately hope for. In any way compares with our greatest need to be forgiven for our sin. That's the truth the Bible consistently and passionately proclaims. That God is holy and that we are not. We all let him down in things we do and say and think or fail to do say and think. His justice demands that that sin is punished. That a price must be paid. And yet alongside God's justice, we have his mercy. And his mercy demands that we are offered a way out through the one perfect human being who would die in place of us all. That was the great exchange of human history. When Jesus died on the cross, and his actions and words in this story, look ahead to that defining moment of history, the basis on which all forgiveness uh, before that and after that could be given. If you haven't accepted that precious gift of God's forgiveness through Jesus, that's the most important decision 
the greatest decision you could ever make. I'd really encourage you to talk to me or to Russ or to Claire or whoever you've come with this morning if you'd like to explore that further. And do think about the Alpha course as well, which is uh, just running, uh, just starting uh, this week in its second week. But here's my point. For those of us who have made that decision already, perhaps many years ago, the wonder, the awe, the all-encompassing joy of realizing that we've been rescued, that we've been set free, that we've been made right with God through Jesus is not meant to be the end. Conversion is just the beginning. And though we will often have things subsequently that we long for God to do, no request and no answer to prayer will ever be of anywhere near the same magnitude as that simple prayer, merciful God, please forgive me. Please enter my life as Lord and Saviour. I vow to live for you as your dearly adopted son or daughter. It's the starting point of the Christian life, but it's also meant to be the permanent focal point, the lens through which everything else is to be seen. It's why so many churches are built in the shape of a cross. I'm not sure this one is, but many are. It's why so many hymns are about the cross and what Jesus did for us there. It's why so much of the Gospels is devoted to his death. Why so much of the New Testament is about reflecting on what it means. It's why so much of the Old Testament looks ahead to this one final, ultimate, sacrificial lamb. Jesus dying for us and then rising again is the greatest news the world has ever heard And the only reason we're not currently moved by it, if we're not, is because we've forgotten how astonishing, how amazing, and how truly wonderful it really is. And the message of the Bible, and the rediscovery of the Reformation, in fact, is that actually it's only in re-remembering, time and time again, this mercy and this grace and reflecting on it and responding to it afresh, that true, deep, long-lasting peace, joy, and contentment can be found. Gaze anew at the cross and all those other desires and longings that we have can be mercifully lightened. They're no longer must-haves that leave us desperate or tormented or fearful. Instead, we find ourselves able to say what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And then then we're able to respond as Romans 12 verse 1 tells us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy through Christ, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Which is where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law fell down. That's what we can learn from them. Because they knew that God had called them to be holy. There was no doubt about that. But what they didn't understand was that they needed a saviour. They thought they could earn their way to God's favour. And in denying their own sin, thinking that they were keeping the law fully, ignoring the sin in their own hearts that Jesus pointed out. They rejected the very one who could have forgiven them. And so service for them was not the delightful response to grace that 
that healing, that healed, paralyzed man experienced or his friends seem to be experiencing or that we experienced when we came to faith. Rather, it was the joyless, anxiety-ridden drudgery which they then tried to impose on everyone else. And yet here's the point of relevance for us today. None of us are really that much like the Pharisees or teachers of the law. And yet, as Christians, we can so easily slip into this this too. If you've ever read Tim Keller, you'll know that this is, in many ways, his main theme in all the books that he's written. We slip into religiosity so easily ourselves. It's the default human position. And what it means is that we start doing things, often not realising it's happening, just because we know we ought subconsciously trying to impress God or impress ourselves or just to keep up appearances. We all slip into it time and time again. And it comes when we take our eyes off the cross, forgetting the wonderful reality of grace, it becoming a distant memory that we we think was relevant then but is no longer relevant to us today. And losing, as a consequence, that true motivation for service for worship, for evangelism, for life, that only deep, humble gratitude can bring. It's a trap and temptation that, to be honest, the devil sets for us week on week, to take our eyes off grace and replace it with guilt, and focusing on what we currently don't have, rather than what we already have through Jesus. It's a glass half-empty replacing a glass totally full. So who are the role models then for us in this story? It's the paralyzed man and the four devoted friends. For they all recognize that Jesus was gracious, that he loved them, that he cared about them, and they were willing to do anything to meet him and to receive from him what he had for them. Nothing else really mattered And when they received it, they were absolutely overwhelmed with joy. The healed man went praising God on his way home with his mat under his arm. No doubt sharing what had happened with anyone who would listen for the rest of his life. The emotion that God longs for us to have too. To be so radiant, so full of joy, so full of gratitude that we can't help but talk about it. And people can see it in our eyes Anyway, that's what's being modelled to us. And that love, faith and compassion that those four friends showed as well, that's the response to grace that Jesus longs for us to have. Grateful recipients of mercy, leading others to him, the one who can meet their deepest needs. As the Apostle John put it in 1 John 4 verse 19, We love because he first loved us. So it's time to come down to land and ask the question, what are your contentment levels like this morning? How joyful are you feeling? Are you feeling burdened, weighed down? Are you finding yourself obeying out of obligation or doing out of duty? Why are you experiencing afresh that wonderful, liberating, truly astonishing, awe-inspiring news once again? The price is paid. You're forgiven. Perfect in his sight. 
and deeply and unconditionally loved. So we can stop worrying. We can stop feeling guilty. We can stop beating ourselves up. And we can hear the promises that Paul makes in Romans 8 in response to God's grace that he spent the previous eight chapters unpacking. Hear these words now of peace and encouragement to us. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What a wonderful promise and assurance that is. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or unpopularity or someone offending us or unemployment or trouble at work or a difficult boss or problems with our kids, whatever it might be, a broken down car. Here comes the answer. No, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can have peace. We can have joy. We can put things in perspective. We can hold everyone, everything lightly. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but I spend quite a bit of my time worried. I don't know about you, but I don't always love myself. I don't always feel loved. I don't know about you, but I often feel disappointed with how I live for God. I don't know about you, but I feel broken most of the time. I don't know about you, but I think actually we're all like that. And yet the message that God loves us unconditionally that he sees us as perfect, that he believes in us, that he cares about us, and that he is with us wherever we go, whatever we do, is the most wonderful assurance. It's the foundation of our faith. And it's the way in which we can have joy, peace, and contentment, not just now, but forever as we return to his grace and his love time and time again. So what we're going to do now is listen to a song. Um, It's going to be on a video, and it, it really sums up what I've been wanting to share this morning. It's called The Wonder of the Cross, and it's all about returning to the cross so that our first love, the one who loved us first, can become the one that we love the most again. And we can find our peace, our joy, our perspective, and our passion for him through seeing his mercy 
once again. So we're going to watch that video now. And then after that, I'm going to invite us just to spend a couple of moments in prayer before the children return, where we've got an opportunity just to do business with God. So as we listen to this song, why don't you prayerfully ask God to connect with you, with your heart, and give you that joy of realizing afresh what he has done for you in Jesus. So let's watch that together now.
So what we're going to do now is do something really important. We have the space, we have the time to respond to Jesus as we feel led to do. If you feel you, you want to reconnect with your first love, this is the moment to do it. If you feel you want to invite him as your Lord and Saviour into your life for the first time, this is the moment to do it. If you do, please do tell someone afterwards. We'd love to encourage you in that. If you feel you want to put aside again the drudgery of obeying out of obligation, of doing out of duty... Ask Jesus just to release you from that now. If you're facing things that really cause you fear, get you down, distract you, why don't you place those burdens at Jesus' feet right now? So whatever you're at, wherever you're at, this is a, Really brilliant opportunity, and I encourage you to take it. Two minutes is quite a long time. If you want to carry on after the service and have someone pray with you, just uh, come up to the front, and we'd love to do that just uh, here on the chancel afterwards. So let's pray.
Father God, we turn our eyes back to Jesus. May he be the focus of our love. And may his love transform our lives. Amen.